Good morning, everybody. It's always good to see you all, especially on a day like today. We can just celebrate the core of our faith, that we serve a risen Savior. He's alive. Praise God. And I guess this year, I guess I'm especially so thankful that Easter is happening when it is. A good number of you are guests, but our church family has experienced, for, for a church our size, we've experienced an inordinate number of family-related deaths over the last probably three weeks. And so for those of you who are here who have been those family members, I'm so thankful that we can be reminded of the core truth that carries us through those times. Because some of these deaths were really unexpected and really tragic. And, um, and then others of you who are just simply going through times of suffering, a variety of kinds of, of hardships. Praise God that we have good news. Our faith is a faith of good news. Amen? So I'm thankful for that. I don't know, how many of you received Easter cards this week? Do you, do you still do Easter cards, a good number of you? I had a card waiting for me on my desk this morning. I don't know when she made it, but I just loved it. Uh, to Pastor Gary from Zoe Zuccarello, here's the front. You open it up. You do great sermons. <laughs> don't worry, smile, because you're awesome. That's pretty cool, pretty cool. I just sat in my office and smiled for about five minutes after that. Uh, the breakfast downstairs, thank you to all of you who served so faithfully in a variety of ways, you know. Megan is doing the artwork, and she did the flowers, the arrangements. Uh, we had a team of people downstairs setting up for the, the pancake breakfast, which is a f donation fundraiser for our Puerto Rico missions trip coming up this summer. I think there are about 15 of us that are heading down to Puerto Rico just to do whatever they need us to do, essentially. And so thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who served, to those of you who donated. And uh, now my only request is there were an awful lot of carbs consumed. And so you've got to keep slapping yourself in the face or jabbing your partner, your person sitting next to you or sitting in front of you to stay awake because I know what... Uh, Pancakes and syrup and sausage and all that stuff does to me. I don't know if it does it to you. <clears throat> if you were to think back over your entire life, as far as you can remember, and pick one week, one week as the most memorable of all the weeks that you've lived, which one would you pick and why? Why? Now, it might be kind of hard. I think a lot of us can probably find days. You can say, I remember that day. Maybe for some, the day you got married or the day your first child was born or the day you graduated from high school or college or grad school or what have you, the day you got your first job. Lots of days stick out. And then also on the flip side of the good days, there's also bad days that you probably remember. The, the day that you received a, a really bad piece of news, uh, a doctor's diagnosis or prognosis or the death of a loved one. We remember those days, don't we? But to find a week, to find a week means that you need to find essentially seven days that all packaged together made it really memorable for you. Um, 
for example, the one I thought of just this week was uh, Loyola of Chicago's basketball team, who for a week thought they might make it to the championship game until they met Michigan. <clears throat> I had to get that in there, right? Um, for some of you to find a memorable week, it probably would be a week of travel of some type, some kind of vacation, good or bad. Uh, maybe it's the week that you hiked the Appalachian Trail, or uh, a week that you went on an African safari, or that week-long trip with all the kids in a 15-foot camper that felt like a month. You remember those types. So what week would you pick? This week, which the Christian world has been observing since last Sunday and which culminates today is in recognition not only of the most most memorable but the most significant, the most important week in the life of the most important person who has ever lived. It was the week that the entirety of Jesus' life for the previous 32 plus years had been marching toward with great intentionality. All of his life had been looking ahead to this one week, the events of which, as we know, would alter the course of history for every century to follow. It began with his entry into Jerusalem to the praises of the people, the hallelujahs, the praises, the palm branches. Then it progressed to his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then the mock trial by the Jewish leaders. Then being brought before Pontius Pilate first, then Herod second, Then the cries of the people to crucify him, the same people who had sung his praises are now yelling for him to be put to death. Then the crucifixion itself that we remembered on Good Friday. Then all of it culminating with the victory of resurrection. Now what I want to do this morning is to walk us through the post-crucifixion and resurrection narrative found in Mark's gospel. And as we do so, for us to think about what it all means to each of us. Friends, I want to tell you this morning, it's got to mean something to you. It has to mean something to you. You can't simply walk away from this, although many people do, with it and not be unmoved in some fashion. The most important week in the life of the most important person who ever lived should rock your world like nothing else. So, let's stand in honor as you're able for the reading of God's word. It's an extended passage. I will read it for us. You can follow along on the screen. Taken from Mark chapter 15 and 16. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Please be seated. And so the first thing that Mark gives us in this narrative is what I will refer to as some crucifixion repercussions. Some crucifixion ripples, if you will. It's like dropping a giant boulder into a small pond. The ripples are going to go out in all directions and wash up against the shore. You have repercussions of the crucifixion that Mark gives to us here. Because you see, in his gospel, John Mark gives us a backdrop for the certainty of Jesus' death before he can tell us about the certainty of his resurrection. And that's important, because there were people in that day just as there are people in this day who tried to come up with rumors that Jesus hadn't really been raised from the dead, that maybe he had passed out and then been taken down from the cross and revived, or perhaps his disciples had stolen his body from the cross and then, and then established this, this rumor, they spread a rumor that somehow he was alive. And so Mark wanted to be sure that people understood, no, he was really, really dead, And he was laid in a tomb. And his body was in the tomb. And the tomb had been sealed and guarded by a contingency of Roman soldiers. And so the gospel writers are insistent in their accounts of the absolute uncertainty that Jesus was dead. So let me give you some of the repercussions of the crucifixion. First of all, there was this really eerie midday darkness. Remember that all of this took place in the middle of the day between noon and 3 p.m. And there was this very eerie darkness that settled over the entire region. 
How many of you experienced the, the solar eclipse this past summer? Someplace where it actually worked. We were up in northern Michigan, and, and it really wasn't terribly effective. Uh, you could tell something was going on only if you looked through the special glasses. But uh, we talked to our kids in, Na- in St. Louis and down in Nashville, and they sent us videos on their cameras. And the effect that it had on people was pretty amazing. They, they had never experienced anything like this type of a darkness before. The total solar eclipse lasted for two minutes and 40 seconds. The darkness on the day that Christ died lasted for three hours, from noon until 3 p.m. Now, scholars speculate that it was probably localized, covering Jerusalem and the nearby countryside, surrounding area, but I don't know. I just wonder if God might not have placed the entire planet into a state of darkness during the suffering of his son on the cross? I mean, it was as if all of heaven was in a death watch with the sun's rays being blocked out. God basically telling the sun it would not be allowed to shine its light on his beloved son during these most holy hours. And friends, isn't it ironic? At the birth of Christ, the heavens were filled with light. The glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds in the middle of the night. Here at his death, there is darkness in the middle of the day. Then John Mark tells us that Jesus took his last breath. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And so those who were present, those who were there, heard Jesus crying out from the cross one last time. They were watching him closely as his body heaved gasping for air as he rose and fell against the the wooden beam. And they all knew when he had taken his very last breath. Probably like some of you who have been with loved ones when they took their last breath. I've been in the hospital room on several occasions when the person breathed their last. The last one was Bill Reynolds just this past year. There can be that, if you haven't experienced, there can be this interminable pause between breaths when someone is nearing death. You think they're gone, and then there's one more. And then you wait, maybe 30 seconds, and then there's one more. And then, finally, the last breath comes. And the attending nurse informs you and the family that they're gone. Now, there was no attending nurse there that day. There was no attending physician there that day. There was just a really large crowd of witnesses who waited and watched and waited until Jesus took his very last breath. And they knew that he had died. The next thing that John Mark tells us, which is also included in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's, is something pretty bizarre. And it's the fact that the the temple veil was torn. It says that when Jesus died, Mark tells us that the veil or the curtain in the temple was torn in half. Now let me give you a little background. We'll put a picture up on the screen of the temple and an idea of the curtain. During the lifetime of Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religious activity. That's where the sacrifices took place. Uh, 
That's where they were carried out. That's where the people worshipped according to the law of Moses. Hebrews 9 tells us that in the temple, a veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place. And the veil signified that man was separated, man in his sin was separated from God in his perfection and holiness. And so this veil existed. Exodus 30 talks about it, Hebrews chapter 9. Only once a year, the high priest would enter and go through the veil, go behind the veil into what represented God's presence for all of Israel to make atonement for their sins. Now think about this, friends. Solomon's temple was 30 cubits high. That's roughly 45 feet. But according to the writings of Jewish historian Josephus, Herod had increased the height to 40 cubits, approximately 60 feet. That's roughly the height of our tower out here on the front of the church. The veil or curtain which separated the holy place from the holy of holies was roughly 30 feet wide, about half the width of this sanctuary, and 50 to 60 feet high. Now, the book of Exodus tells us that the veil was made with blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, threads, fine twisted linen, and the Jewish historian Josephus, recognized by all for his accuracy, tells us that the veil was four inches thick. Have you ever tried to tear something that was four inches thick? Have you ever tried to tear something that was an inch thick? Out of curiosity, I tried to measure the thickness of my jacket this morning. It's less than the 32nd of an inch thick. I would venture to take the two strongest men in this room and bring them to the front. I'm not going to do it because I love this jacket. <laughs> and see if they could possibly tear it in half. And yet the veil was four inches thick. You see, the size and the thickness of the veil makes the events occurring at the moment of Jesus' death on the cross so much more momentous. It says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from where to where? From top to bottom. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, first of all, it took tremendous power to tear it. I mean, secondly, it was torn from the top to the bottom, signifying no human did the tearing. See, the disciples didn't sneak in there at the moment of Jesus' death and somehow climb to the top of the temple and, and get out some knives and start cutting and, and tear it. No, the, the veil or the curtain in the temple was torn by no one except God himself. But friends, lastly and most significantly, the tearing of the veil at the moment of Jesus' death symbolized that the way, the entrance into the Holy of Holies, which represented the presence of God, was now open to all people. Jews and Gentiles, everybody had access into the presence of God that Christ's substitutionary sacrifice was a sufficient atonement for your sins and for my sins. You have access into the presence of God through Christ. You see, in one sense, the veil was actually symbolic of Jesus himself as the only way to the Father, John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. Through me. The high priest had to enter the Holy of Holies through the veil. Now, with Christ, we can enter into God's presence through him. 
Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And so that's probably one of the most bizarre pieces that John Mark includes in his narrative, as does Matthew and Luke. Then he tells us about the Roman centurion's witness. One person who was there that day to witness what happened, witnessed the whole thing, was the Roman centurion, who had been among those who had helped crucify him. He had been there to help clothe Jesus with a mock purple cloak, had twisted together a crown of thorns and and placed it upon Jesus' head, had mockingly hailed him as king of the Jews, had beat him in the face, and had covered his, Jesus' face with their own spittle. And now the centurion is standing at the foot of the cross, has watched Jesus take his very last breath, and Mark tells us, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, This man was the Son of God. Now think about that for a minute. Just a few hours earlier, he had been mocking Jesus. Now he is on the verge of worshiping Jesus. You say, how does that happen? Well, here's what I think happened. I think this is what had to have happened. God had sovereignly and graciously opened the centurion's eyes and revealed to him the identity of the one whom he, three hours earlier, had helped to crucify. You see, friends, understand, there were lots of people there that day who walked away unmoved by what they saw. They just thought another insurrectionist had been put to death. They just thought another criminal, one, two, three criminals, all three of them dead, gone. But there was one man who was totally changed. For the centurion to come to that conclusion and to make that exclamation for everybody to hear who is standing around him. See, friends, there are lots of people today who walk away from the cross unmoved. There are lots of people today who walk away from an empty tomb unchanged. See, here's the deal. All of humanity divides into two groups. Those who see Jesus for who he is and worship him and exclaim with centurion, truly, this is the Son of God, and those who don't. That's all of humanity. Which one are you? Which one are you? Have, you? have you confessed with the centurion? Truly, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And this has got to rock my world. This has got to change me. This has got to impact me in some fashion for as many days as you allow me to live on this planet. This, this event, this event, this event have to rock my world. Then John Mark tells us that Jesus' body was removed from the cross. It says, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, 
That is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea got up the courage, went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. And John's gospel reports that Nicodemus, a prominent Pharisee, the Pharisee who had sought out Jesus in the middle of the night because he didn't want other Pharisees to see him talking to Jesus, he was also there helping Joseph of Arimathea prepare the body for burial. It says, together they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings with the spices. Roughly 100 pounds of spices would have been used in the, in the, in the embalming process. Commentators Thomas and Gundry make the observation that, quote, the disciples who had openly followed Jesus, think about this. This is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus over here and all of the other disciples, Simon Peter and James and John over here. The disciples who had openly followed Jesus during his lifetime ran away. But the two disciples who had kept their faith secret while he was alive now came forward publicly to give him an appropriate burial. What a contrast. Then John Mark tells us the body was placed in the tomb. Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. You see, once Pilate had ascertained that Jesus was indeed dead by asking the centurion, is this true? Is he dead? He said, yep, he's dead. Then he gave permission for his body to be given a decent burial. The tomb belonged to Joseph. Joseph was apparently from a wealthy family. Historians tell us that it more than likely consisted of a relatively ornately painted vestibule as you stepped right inside And then there would have been a passageway going from there into sort of the cave area where the body would be laid on a shelf cut into the side of the rock. The tomb would then be sealed with a large heavy stone, probably rolled by several strong men along a groove cut into the rock at the entrance. So those are the crucifixion repercussions say, what's all that about? Friends, what John Mark and Matthew and Luke are doing is giving, in giving all those details, you know what they're doing? They're providing us with a death certificate. They're giving you Jesus' death certificate with all those details. Because before we can get to the resurrection, John Mark needed to make sure that we were convinced of Jesus' death. See, the authenticity, if someone's going to be raised from the dead, the authenticity of their being raised from the dead is based upon the authenticity that they are dead. In addition to all that, Mark tells us all of that, and then Luke adds, all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle returned home beating their breasts. In other words, all the crowds stayed right there, right up to the very end. They weren't going anywhere until this thing is over. They stayed to the very end. Now it's over. And they all return home, beating their breasts, which was a sign of Jewish grief and mourning when someone had died. So now with all of that, Mark is now ready to give us the evidence of resurrection. 
You got the certainty of death, now let's talk about the evidence of resurrection. And there's an interesting observation to make about the resurrection accounts in all four Gospels. It's the presence of the women. The presence and the role of the women after the crucifixion and at the resurrection. At the same time, the absence of the men. There were no male disciples around. Mark mentions the women three times. Mark 15, 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. 1547, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, salary was laid. Chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, they might go and anoint him. You say, what's so important about that? Well, what's important to note is that the presence of the women at the tomb instead of the male disciples actually served to authenticate that it wasn't a fabricated account. Tim Keller, in his book, King's Cross, cites biblical scholar Richard Bauckham, who says that this is actually one of John Mark's ways of letting us know that this was not a fabricated account. He's giving us an accurate historical account by including the women. Friends, here's the deal. If Mark or the other gospel writers had wanted to give credibility to a made-up account, they would have had men there. They would not have had women. Because in that day and in that culture... In antiquity, even among Jews, the testimony of a woman was considered questionable. Sorry, ladies. While the testimony of a man was considered reliable. And so if they had made up this account, they would have had a whole bunch of the male disciples there. They wouldn't have had women come. But this authenticates the reality that this is not a made-up fabrication. Keller states, The only possible reason for the presence of women in these accounts is that they really were present and reported what they saw. The stone has been rolled away, the tomb is empty, and an angel declares that Jesus is risen. Now something else that John Mark is probably telling us here, with the women being present, is that they were still living when the gospel was written and that if you don't believe me, go talk to them. Go check it out for yourself. John Mark is saying, I can tell you where they live. I mean, Mary lives on Bethlehem Circle. Mary Magdalene, she lives right behind the kosher deli. Go talk to them. They'll tell you exactly what happens. Say, okay, well then, what did the women do? When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Friends, get this. They were not going to the tomb looking for an alive Jesus. They were going to the tomb looking for a dead Jesus. They were going to finish the burial rites begun by Joseph and Nicodemus. And they would have gone earlier had it not been the Sabbath but Jews, Jewish law forbids that you work on the Sabbath, so they had to wait. Now it's daybreak. The sun has come up. The day following the Sabbath, they go back to the tomb as a group of women, and on their way, they're discussing their dilemma. We've got a problem here. Who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb? It's a great question. Because historians tell us that the stone used to seal the entrance of a tomb such as this would have weighed in excess of 1,000 pounds. 
Now, I try to think of some comparisons. So I'm going to give you a few. Uh, next slide shows some comparisons. Concrete block weighs 28 pounds. And so you take 36 concrete blocks and make them into a chunk of something. That's 1,000 pounds. Um, the side-by-side -side refrigerator weighs 300 pounds. So it'd be the equivalency of three side-by-side -side refrigerators as one item sealing the entrance to the tomb. A baby elephant weighs 900 pounds. And so a chubby baby elephant would weigh 1,000 pounds. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so the stone's been rolled away, which leads to, number three, resurrection reactions. The women are coming to the tomb fully prepared to deal with a dead body and are greeted with the words, You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified? He's not here, ladies. Imagine going to one of the area funeral homes, let's say Schrader or Cutis or Bope Chapel, for the funeral of someone you knew, and you get there, but there's no body in the casket. And everyone, including the funeral director, is pretty freaked out, wondering what's going on. I really like the way Luke records it, with the angel asking the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? That's a great question. Why are you looking for fruits and vegetables in the meat department? Why are you looking for the Great Lakes in the middle of Kansas? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? The two don't go together. Why are you looking for something that you're obviously not going to find here? This is the place of the dead. This is the place of the dead. And remember... This is exactly what Jesus had told them would happen. Mark 8, Jesus said that the Son of Man will be killed. After three days, he'll rise again. Mark 9, the Son of Man will be killed. After three days, he'll rise. Mark 10, the Son of Man will be killed. After three days, he will rise. And they had heard those words. They had heard Jesus say those words numerous times, but they still came to the tomb looking for a corpse. And the angel's instructions to the women were very brief. He said to the ladies, go, tell his disciples and Peter. I love this. Special word for Peter because Peter had denied Jesus, knowing Jesus three times. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. There you'll see him, just as he told you. And, and by the way, friends, for all of you who beat up on yourselves for all those you know, we all beat up on ourselves, right? I love the fact that the angel did not say, go tell those worthless, pathetic, unbelieving, betraying, faithless, cowardly losers that maybe, just maybe, Jesus will be willing to see them, but they had better cringe and beg their way into his presence. You don't have to do that. Praise God. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. He waits for you to come back to him every single time that you walk away. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'll be there. I'm going ahead of you. 
I'll be waiting for you when you get there, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again. I love that. And that's exactly what happened. Luke's gospel gives us the details. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I. Touch me. See. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Do you have anything here to eat? I'm starved. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in front of them. And so Jesus' resurrected body, friends, had flesh and bones. The disciples knew that it was him. They were able to touch him. They could smell his sweat. He spoke with them. They saw the nail scars in his hands and his feet. They watched then as he took some broiled fish off of the fire and put it in his mouth and chewed it and swallowed it. They knew that it wasn't a ghost. They knew that it wasn't an apparition. They knew they weren't hallucinating. And plus, this would be just the beginning of Jesus' appearances. The four Gospels record seven different times when he appeared to disciples. In the book of Acts, we learn that he appeared to various groups, individuals, small groups, medium-sized groups, large groups, over the course of 40 days. That's like Jesus started to meet with people and appear to people now all the way to Mother's Day. And the result was that you had several hundred, perhaps upwards of a thousand people whose lives were completely rocked because of resurrection. They would never be the same. They would never approach a Monday morning the same. They would never go through a difficulty the same. They would never face a crisis the same. They would never encounter death the same. They would never think the same. The risen Christ had introduced a whole new paradigm for life, a whole new way of thinking about life, which brings us to our final consideration. So what? So what? So what for you? You see, there are certain things in life, as I've said, that that really rattle you and rock you. Unexpected illnesses, unexpected deaths. It seems like things that really rock our world tend to be bad news, right? Seems like bad news really rocks our world. I want to tell you this morning, you need to allow the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to rock your world to rattle. It should mess with you in a really big way and in a really wonderful way. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a transforming gospel. It's not a religion. It's not just religion. So you go through the motions and do all this and and come to church on Easter or 52 weeks out of the year. I don't care. You can go through all the motions of religion and miss Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to transform us. To give us new eyes and new ears and a new heart. A new passion. 
new ideas of why am I here? Why has God given me six and a half decades? And what will I do for the rest of the days that he gives me? All of that should be informed by resurrection, by the gospel of a risen Savior. Friends, if Jesus is risen from the dead, then there are all kinds of implications. Most importantly, it's all true. It's all true. If Jesus has risen from the dead, you can't get away with saying that he was just a great teacher or a great man or a moral man. No, if he said the things he said, if he died the death that he died and was raised from the dead, he's not a mere man. He is who he says he is. And you've got to deal with that. And you want to deal with that. He is God in the flesh. And he brings unbelievable hope into our jacked up world. I mean, if Jesus is risen from the dead, then he really is the way and the truth and the life. He really is the light of the world. He really did exist before Abraham was born. He really is the Messiah. He really is sitting at God's right hand right now. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then he really did come to bring us back to God. He really did come to bear the punishment for all of your sins. He really did come to take away your shame and your guilt. And you can say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ, the risen Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I live my Mondays by faith. I live my Tuesdays by faith. I live my Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can say with him, for me to live is Christ and to die, it's gain. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then the world is completely different than had he not been raised from the dead. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then all of life has been altered. Even on those days when you don't feel like it. Even on your worst days. Because now, through faith in Jesus, we have a hope within us that is due solely to the fact that the tomb is empty. Christ is alive, and that he is king of all kings, lord of all lords, president of all presidents, and he is in control not only of the planet, but he is in control of the universe, and that he is going to keep his promises to make all things new, beginning with you, and that he is going to keep his promise that one day he is going to come back again. Praise God. Pray with me, please. I really do want to give you the opportunity to do something with what you've heard this morning from the Word of God. Please, please, please. Don't allow such a radical message to go unheeded. There is no other message in all the world like this one because there has never been another person like Christ. 
Would you say with the centurion today, truly, this is the Son of God. Truly, he died for my sins. Truly, I need him. For as many days after this one that God gives me, I want to walk these days in faith, believing in Christ. Would you give your life to him right where you're sitting right now? Trust him, believe in him, receive him. The Bible says, to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. You can become a child of God on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, 2018, can be your birthday. Or maybe this day needs to be a day where you recommit your life to Christ. You've known him in the past but you've kind of taken him for granted. You've been going through the motions, perhaps. But you need to follow him. You need to get to know him. You need to get to know this one who died for you. Wouldn't you want to get to know someone who would give his life for you? You need to know the one who conquered death. Resurrection Sunday 2018 be your day to come back to the Lord to recommit your life to Christ say Lord thank you for not giving up on me thank you for not giving up on me thank you for covering all of my shame and all my guilt and all my sin and all my wrongs all my mistakes all my regrets I need you today I need you the rest of my life love you, Lord. We're only able to say that because you first loved us. You are the risen Savior. The tomb is empty. We praise you. We worship you. All of God's people agreed together by saying enthusiastically and emphatically, amen. Amen.